So we're going to have uh, some signs come on the screen because John's gospel is all about signs. And uh, here's one of them, which is caution. This sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And then down below it says, sorry, back a wee second. Um, it says, also the bridge is out ahead. So that's in the really small stuff. Here's another sign that uh, seems a peculiar one. This is a private sign. Please do not read. And then we have uh, skinny people are easy to kidnap, therefore stay safe, eat lots here. And uh, whenever I try to eat healthy, a chocolate bar looks at me and snickers. And turning vegan could be a big mistake. Crushing pop cans is so depressing. <laughs> and uh, I was once addicted to the hokey cokey, but I turned myself around. So some great signs out there, and John's gospel is all about signs. And uh, it's interesting that the first time that John mentions sign, it's, he says that at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee, Jesus did his first sign. And because of that, people put his disciples put his faith in him, and also he gave glory to God. And so all through John's gospel, there's these signs. And the start of chapter 2 begins with a, an interesting moment about describing time. It says, on the third day, they were at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, if you look back over chapter 1, it's an interesting thing because it looks at Jesus and John the Baptist and everything else, and it says, on the next day this happened, on the next day this happened, on the next day this happened, on the next day this, this happened. So if anything at the start of chapter, five, chapter 2, we're expecting it to go on the fifth day, but chapter 2 opens on the third day. Now that's not because John has got his sums wrong, it's because John wants to give us a clue, because the signs in John's gospel are like clues. It's like John has written his gospel and it's like a treasure hunt. And he puts in the clues of a treasure hunt all the way through until we start to get the hang of what's going on. And what he wants us to understand is this, everything about the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, is a sign of what God is doing. Some of the signs are miraculous, and some of the signs are not miraculous. But in a way, John is saying they're all miraculous. And so Jesus clearing the temple is one of the big signs. We may not see it as a miraculous sign, but nonetheless, it's a sign. And whatever Jesus does, and whatever Jesus says, it's all a sign of the kingdom of God. And by saying, on the third day they were at a wedding, John is referring back. Do you remember how John's gospel started? It is an echo of Genesis chapter 1, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. And what happens in day 6? The creation of human beings. In John's gospel, it's day 1 to day 6. And what happens on day 6? We'll see later on in John's gospel. Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate says, here is the man. We have come to the point of the creation of the perfect human being. Jesus Christ is the man. And this is day three, halfway through. And in Genesis chapter one, if you read it again, you'll see that on the third day, land is created. And the writer of Genesis is all about forming and then filling. Uh, day one, day four. Day three corresponds to day six. And so what it is, is this is 
the forming of the perfect thing God is going to do. It's pointing us towards day six, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection. The day seven, the perfect day. And so, what is John trying to say to us through telling us, the only gospel writer to tell us about this wedding at Cana of Galilee and this great sign that Jesus turns the water into wine? Well, if we look at it for a moment in terms of uh, what it says in John chapter 2, it's really interesting because Mary is invited to a wedding. And sort of because Mary is invited, so is Jesus, because no one knows who Jesus really is. And so Jesus gets invited with his friends because his mom has been invited to the wedding. And at that time, people would have invited entire villages. Quite often, if there was a village, someone having a wedding, the whole village was invited to a wedding. And quite often, some other people from the other villages beyond. So whenever you had a town like Cana, and maybe there was 400 residents in the village, pretty much everybody would have been invited along. It would have been a big, big do. Everyone would have been anticipating this big day in the community, this big party. And so the day the party comes, the wedding happens, the, the, the festivities are happening, food is being eaten, the, the wine is flowing until, boom, they run out of wine. Now, if we're to try and understand the social gravity of this situation. Imagine that if you're invited to a wedding in the days when big weddings happened and uh, there's a big crowd at a hotel and maybe there's 100 or 200 guests come to this wedding and everyone eats and laughs and enjoy themselves and they're at this fantastic reception in a big hotel. It comes the end of the meal and then the waiters start to go round the tables with a basket and say, you're all going to have to pay your own way. I'm afraid there's been a miscalculation. The family can't afford to pay for the wedding reception. I'm afraid you can't leave the hotel today until you pay for your meal. That gives us a little bit of a flavor as to the social disaster that was unfolding in a little town called Cana. This day, which would have been the best day in many ways of this young couple's lives, suddenly, potentially, became the worst day of their lives. And they would have seen this as a completely dark day, a social disaster. Because you can imagine in a situation like I've just described, going to a hotel and then being charged for your wedding meal, imagine if everyone at the wedding lived in the village where you lived and every day you were going to see those people for the rest of your life. That's the level of shame that we're talking about. The young bride and the young groom would have realized that this was going to live with them for the rest of their lives. In fact, probably their children's lives, even their grandchildren's lives, this was going to hang over the family like a cloud of shame for generations to come. And so Mary walks past Jesus, her son, doesn't ask him to do anything, but just says they've run out of wine. And Jesus, realizing the the magnitude of the situation, probably being taken off guard by Mary walking up to him, says, uh, why do you involve me in the situation? Fair question to ask. 
And then Mary walks off, and I imagine probably just within Jesus' earshot says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then Mary heads off to the side. It's only one of two occasions in the Gospels of John, the Gospel of John, that we read about Mary's life. So again, John is telling us the wedding at Canaan of Galilee is very significant. When is the next time that we meet Mary in John's Gospel? It's at the foot of the cross. This is day three. That is day six. This is a, an important sign. The crucifixion is the sign that we're heading towards. And they're the only two places in John's gospel where we meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I imagine what happens in that moment, and I'm only imagining, that whispers start to go around the table. The wine has run out. The jars are empty. And gossip begins, and disappointment begins, and recriminations begin. And I can just imagine at some point, either because she sees it or because she has told it, that the bride realizes that this could turn from being the best day of her life to the worst day of her life, just like that. And I wonder in that moment, as Jesus listens and prays to his heavenly Father, and perhaps hears the sound of the whisperings around him, and notices the bride's face drop. I wonder in that moment, as Jesus prays, and always being in tune with the Father, hears the Father speak to him in agreement with his mother who is on earth. And I think that's what's happening in this moment. Jesus doesn't respond because of what his mom says to him. But he does respond when his father in heaven says to him, do what your mother is suggesting. And I imagine in that moment, the Holy Spirit guides Jesus to do something to do with water. And perhaps in that moment, Jesus, knowing the scriptures so well, knows that perhaps this is the start of a journey towards the cross. That's what he means by saying, my hour has not yet come. Jesus knows as soon as he steps into the light, as soon as he steps from a place of anonymity, he's been invited to this wedding not because of who he is, but because of his, who his mother is. Jesus and his friends are just a part of the crowd. And Jesus knows as soon as he steps into the light, as soon as miraculous things begin to happen, the stopwatch has started, he knows he's heading towards the cross. And so it's not a light thing that Jesus gets up from his place and asks the servants to fill the water jars with water. Jesus, knowing the scriptures, knows that in the Old Testament again and again it describes God as the bridegroom and the people of Israel as the bride. And we know the whole sweep of the Bible is heading towards the great banquet in heaven. When John has this vision. The man who's writing the gospel for us has given a vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the bride, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, dressed beautifully for her husband. The Bible is all heading, history is all heading towards the great heavenly banquet. And what is the significance of that? It's the place where heaven and earth 
which became separated at the fall in the Garden of Eden, in the great fracture caused by human beings turning their back on God, it is the place of the great reconciliation. It is the great place of heaven coming together in earth. And what is the metaphor that the Bible uses for this great reunion? It's a wedding. It's where God, the bridegroom, meets with his bride, his people. And that's what the whole of Scripture is all about. That's the journey that we're on. It's a journey of being all things new. It's a journey of us, the bride, who lived in shame, being made acceptable to God for the day of the great wedding. And so God does three things through Jesus Christ. Hopefully some words will come on the screen. I think they're to do with kindness. I think they're to do with purity. And they're to do with power. In the big scheme of things, what God is doing is he is stepping in on his kindness to remove our shame. Because a cloud of shame hangs over the human race. And what Jesus has done what the Father has done in and through Jesus is to dissipate the cloud of shame. And so that's why the Father chooses a wedding and tells his son this is the moment to act. Because just as Jesus saved the day and saved the party and saved this young couple from a life of shame, so Jesus Christ for us all, has offered us the opportunity to be saved from a life of shame. And so in his kindness, Jesus steps in and turns the water into wine. He saves the day and he removes the shame. You and I know how he removes the shame. And so that's all about purity and holiness. And so God chooses, Jesus chooses these six stone water jars that were used for Jewish purification. People would come into an event. Today we have hand gel. In those days, it was much more involved than just avoiding coronavirus. The washing of your hands and your feet and your face was all about a ritualistic purification which sought to purify the heart and the life. And that's why the Jews would come in and in a prayer they would seek to become pure in heart. And they would enact that through a purification rite with water. And so the Father chooses to do his work from within the Jewish people, within the Jewish structures, and he raises up a man, Jesus, to bring purity real purity, heart purity, not just to the Jews, but in fact to all human beings. And so what happens is that the, at this wedding, the clock starts to tick towards the moment whenever all the shame of the human race will be lifted. You and I know now that that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the great sign. When God lifts the shame of human beings by his son, the great bridegroom, hanging in shame on the cross so that we could be free from shame. 
Jesus removed the shame from that young couple. He removed the shame from the bride. And he's removed the shame from us, the bride, the people of God. And finally, it's also about power. Because Jesus turns water into wine. And the wine signifies throughout the whole Bible the fullness, the richness, the creativity, the abundance of God. And so, let's imagine there are 300 guests. They've had lots to drink and lots to eat. And what does God provide? About 600 liters of the best wine you could ever come across. By my calculations, that's another two liters per person. God is a God of abundance. God is a God of generosity. And God is a God of power. And so he works in us and through us. And the wonderful thing that we know now is that not only was the the cross, the crucifixion, the removal of shame, a great sign. John wants us also to understand that the other half of that great sign is the resurrection. It's life out of death. It's emptiness going to fullness. And so in this Harvest Sunday, we give thanks to God that God is a God who takes from a place of emptiness to a place of fullness. And he does that because not only does he purify us, but actually he also fills us with himself because the bridegroom is here. When we invite God into our lives, he comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ who died for us and he cleanses us, he removes the shame, but he does more than that. He fills us with himself. He fills us with his righteousness. He fills us with the abundance of life. Because Jesus said to his disciples, he says to us, I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. So what does that look like? What does it look like to live life in all of its fullness? It's to live a life not by our own agenda. It's to live a life where we live constantly aware of the presence of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, in his bride, us. And to be aware of the fact that in that, God turns the ordinary water of our lives into something which is rich and abundant, the new wine. I was just talking to someone just after the first service there. They were telling me that recently they, they managed to get a a slot and a, and a barber's booked and online and went down to this new barber shop they'd never been to before. And, and he, uh, this guy was, from our church was the last, was the last client being, having his hair cut in this barber's. And just at the end of it, the person cutting his hair started to talk and ask questions about faith and life and Christian faith. And this young man from our church was able to just start talking to him about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what, what the Christian gospel is all about. And it was a wonderful opportunity. It was perfectly timed to the end of the day so they could have all the time they needed to have this wonderful con- conversation about Christian faith. And then the young man from our congregation then prayed God's blessing on this uh, guy who'd been cutting his hair. It's about living a life where we don't live by our own agenda, but we live by God's agenda. As far as Jesus was concerned, he was going to a wedding that day to eat food and celebrate with his friends, but he was always alert to what the Father was doing. 
And so when the Father said, now is the time to start the journey towards the cross. Now is the time for heaven and earth to become reconciled. Now is the time for you, the Word made flesh, to begin making all of this happen. Now is the time to take the shame away from this bride. Now is the time to bring abundance and joy and fullness of life. About 10 years ago, I was at a wedding reception and um, there was a, a friend of mine who was getting married and I was invited to, to go to the church and to preach at the service. And then we went to sleep, Donald, afterwards and had a, a big slap-up meal. And, and uh, after the meal, um, I was outside and went for a walk just on, on, the, on the lawn in front of the sleeve Donard and looked over the sea. And to my surprise, a, a young, well, probably about a wee bit younger than me, came out and uh, just started to talk to me and, uh, about the fact that he'd grown up as a Christian in a Christian home and he'd lost his way. And, and he started to well up and cry. And, and he, he was obviously just feeling that, feeling really lost and disconnected from God. And, and began to talk about these things, and, and there in the lawn, he recommitted his life to Christ. It was an unexpected moment. It was a wonderful moment. The thing I was challenged about was that myself and Mark and Johnny were at a conference there about a week or so ago, and um, at the conference, we were all socially distanced, so we had the shirt across the table, and... and uh, the speaker asked us, share a time whenever uh, you felt that there was like a moment where um, something just happened you hadn't planned and you saw God do something that he had planned uh, in the midst of a situation. And Mark and Johnny shared and then time ran out. I didn't have time to share. But two things struck me about that situation and both of them worried me. One was that it was 10 years ago was the thing that came to my mind whenever something happened that I thought, wow, that was really clear that God broke in. And there have been other things, but that was the moment that came to mind. Another thing that worried me was this. I had an unfair advantage. He knew I was a minister. I'd preached at the wedding service, and so he came to me. So I feel God challenging me. And I want to challenge you with that challenge. His specific challenge to me is to live an everyday life where I'm open to the agenda of God and open to him breaking in. And it would happen in my life in a situation and situations where people have no idea I'm a minister and no idea that I'm a Christian. And I issue that challenge to all of us. To be like that young man at the last service who found himself just wanting to get a haircut quickly, booking it online, managing to get the last slot of the day, going down and realizing that this was a God-ordained moment when God did something profound in the life of the man who was cutting his hair. Because that young man from our family was willing to listen to the voice of God and was willing to have his own agenda interrupted just as Jesus had his own agenda interrupted at a wedding at Cana of Galilee. That's what it means to live in the presence of the bridegroom. That's what it means that with our hearts and with our mouths and our hands, we will be a blessing to other people. That by our, our calmness and our joy, 
that we would reflect the person of Jesus Christ. That through our mouths that we would speak as Jesus Christ. That we would say words of encouragement and upbuilding and help. That we would always speak the truth and be honest. And that we would point people towards Jesus Christ as living signposts. And also with our hands, that we would give generously, that we would help practically, and that we would bless and bring physical, spiritual, and mental healing to people whenever opportunities arise for us to be bold and say in the moment, can I pray for you? And I think if we do that, we'll be living signposts, pointing people towards Jesus Christ, and we will see heaven come on earth, and we'll see the new wine of God's kingdom breaking in, shame being removed, water being turned into wine, and transformation happening by the power of God. Are you willing to lay aside your own agenda in life and be open to the interruptions of God for that to happen? That's the question I believe God is asking us through this gospel. That's what Jesus Christ was willing to do for us. May we, as those who are forgiven and set free, be willing to do it with him and for him. Let us pray.